Tonight, Yana Valakovic is our host. We welcome your contributions. You can give us a call at 826-4805 or toll free if you're out of the area at 800-640-5911 and to our text line at 492-KHSU. Good evening. Welcome on this beautiful evening to Thursday Night Talk. I'm Yana Valakovic, your host for tonight's show. For my day job, I work for the University of California in the Cooperative Extension Program in partnership with the County of Humboldt, and we're located in the Eureka office. So for tonight's show, I want to talk about wine and wine growing and wine grape growing and some of the intersections that we have in the North Coast. So wine and humans, they tend to go hand in hand. For aficionados of wine, they connect to place, to soils, to seasons, and to regions. Wines have complex flavors, balancing acidity, bitterness, fruitiness, tannins, along with aromas that can wonderfully complement food. Winemaking has culture, tradition, and history. Each of these qualities vary by region and stimulate both localism along with tourism. For years, I've wondered what limits wine grape growing. Travel Highway 101 and a quick dip into Mendocino and you slip into what feels like wine country. And now to the north on Highway 199, a new southern Oregon region is quickly developing. Why has Humboldt's wine grape industry been slow to develop? And what's the potential for more grape growing in the north coast? Is the, is the region suited well for grapes? For tonight's conversation, I want to dig into winemaking and wine grape growing and explore whether Humboldt and Trinity could become the next frontier location. Joining me in the conversation are Andrew Morris. He's a vintner at Bryceland Vineyards in Southern Humboldt, and he has the distinction of being Humboldt's first second-generation winemaker. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. Ah, it's great to have you here. And also joining on the conversation along on the phone is wine growing and plant science advisor for UC Cooperative Extension in Mendocino and Lake Clownies, Glenn McGordy. Glenn, are you there? Yes, I am. Good right. evening to you, Yana. So. <laughs> great. It's lovely to have you both here. So thank you for joining me on this show, and let's explore a little bit of this topic. So can each of you give us a bit more introduction about what you do and maybe share how you got into grape growing or winemaking? Andrew, why don't you start? You said you're a second generation winemaker, so what's yeah, your story? I have, I have the good fortune of uh, my mother and stepfather, uh, Maggie Carey and Joe Collins, uh, started Bryceland Vineyards in 1985, but the story starts earlier than that. In the mid-70s, they started doing the research on the weather in southern Humboldt. At the time, there were a few fallow vineyards around, but no real uh, production in the county, in Humboldt County. And um, in 1977, they recorded, uh, for, for the first time that I know of, the degree days on our porch with a manual high-low thermometer and recording the numbers by, by hand. My mother did. And uh, in 1977, they got uh, 2375 was the degree day total from April 1st through the end of October, which was about 80 degree days more than they did in Burgundy the same year. Mm. And at that same time, um, local ranchers would say, oh, you can't grow grapes here. It's too wet. It's too cold. And so the only conclusion that we could draw was, I guess you can't grow grapes in Burgundy either. <laughs> and so, so, um, so that's, and then, um, like I said, I'm lucky that my parents were the ones that got that all started. And then as it was time for them to retire, uh, my wife and I moved back and took over the winery and apprenticed with them and then have been running it since 2011. Great. Long history. Excellent. Glenn, how about you? How did you get into this? 
Well, I was actually hired by the University of California Cooperative Extension to come up here and work with um, vegetable crops and, and uh, landscapes and what we call environmental horticulture and nurseries. And um, so that was in 1987 that I started. And in 1990, we had kind of a downturn in our economy and we had two retirements. And my boss at the time, Pete Passoff, told me that we're only going to replace one of the positions. We had a horticulturist who worked with wine grapes and pears, and we also had a livestock person who worked with, uh, you know, livestock and range. And I knew a lot about range and pasture, but I, large animals kind of scared me. So I uh, didn't want to be working with cows or horses. I was always worried about getting stepped on or pushed into a fence by them or something. So <laughs> it was an easy choice, and that's how I became the viticulture advisor at that time. And then in 1997, we simplified my position. I used to also work with pears and orchard crops. In 1997, we simplified it so that I would do cross-county work in Lake County as well, strictly as the, the viticulturist. And I changed the title to wine growing because that's really, in the end, what we do. So we don't grow kiwis. We don't grow table grapes. We don't grow raisins. We grow wine grapes. And I really do believe that wine is made in part in the, in the vineyard and the rest in the winery and that there's a continuum and you need to understand the whole process to be really effective at recommending things to people. And then you've dabbled in this in the grape growing yourself, right? Yes. In 1994, I planted a, a little one-acre vineyard on my property along the Russian River of Arnace. And uh, then more recently, in 2001, my brother... Uh, purchased property next door and, and planted a, uh, a vineyard of Marsan Roussan Viognier and uh, farmed it organically and sold the fruit to Petzer. So I'm taking that over now and eventually I'm going to purchase it from him. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm a part-time grape grower too. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to start. So Andrew started talking about degree days and, and I think we should probably you know, unpack that a little bit for our listeners who don't maybe know what a degree day is and maybe expand that a bit to, is this a good region? Is, is, is Humboldt, Trinity, this northern region, a good region for growing wine grapes? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll feel that one. So uh, basically, if you look at when wine grapes grow, they need temperatures of at least 50 degrees Fahrenheit to actively photo, photosynthesize properly. Uh, so even if sunlight's hitting them, if it's below 50, they don't do much. And then at 95, they also like to shut down. But um, when when temperatures are between those two numbers, we, we can add the hours up that that's going on and figure out how long the, the grapes are, are growing during the season. So it varies greatly. And our climate in both Humboldt and Mendocino counties vary the most as you go from west to east. So if we get down to the ocean, uh, the degree to accumulation is about 1,200 hours, which is too low. We need at least 1,800 degree day hours to really effectively be able to ripen fruit, and uh, it's better if it's higher than that. So the fact that Bryceland's around 2,300 is actually pretty nice. That's a great climate for Pinot Noir and other cool varieties. And here in, in uh, where we live along the Russian River in Mendocino County, it's much warmer. It's about uh, 3,100, so then we can start to grow varieties that take much more heat, like Cabernet and Zinfandel. So you have to kind of match your your temperature accumulation with varieties that are suited for that climate and, and they vary greatly. So so we really talk about cool region and warm region grape growing. So in, in Mendocino County, Anderson Valley is our cool region and our warm region would be Ukiah Valley. It's a very easy way of thinking about it. 
And in Humboldt County, um, I don't really know your climate as well as I probably should. Maybe Andrew can talk a little bit about that. So so far, there's really two established areas, um, sort of the northeast and that I'm going to sort of lump together and there'll be some people who will um, maybe quibble with that a bit. But um, generally, the climate is fairly similar between Orleans, Hoopa, and Willow Creek. So I'm going to call it sort of the northeast Humboldt region. And that's a pretty warm area. Um, I'm not sure that the numbers really support Cabernet every year, but um, people do grow Cabernet and it comes out nicely. Um, and so um, that's, that's, the warm, that's our warm section that we know of. And then the Southern Humboldt um, is uh, more similar to the numbers that I was presenting in Priceland. And, you know, of course, um, back in 1977, we didn't have a way to measure the degree day hours. So it was more of an approximation based on the average of the high and the low minus 50, um, which I think is the old way. Is that right, Glenn? Yes. So, and, and some people still think that's a really good way that you don't really need to add up the hours that you can actually go with mean temperatures and that's fine. I'm sure that if you use the mean temperature method, there would be some places that would represent differently because Bryceland has you know more cool hours in the morning than Willow Creek does, for example. Mm-hmm. So you get a slightly different um, you know the meaning's a little bit different. Um, so those are the two main regions that are. Uh, established and you know for example I make a Cabernet from um, now and I uh, from uh, Ishi Pishi Ranch which is part of Pierce Family Farms in um, in Orleans just just north of Orleans on Ishi Pishi Road and um, uh, it's definitely not uh, Napa Cabernet uh, it's a leaner um, more similar to some wines that are produced in Europe I suppose um, but um, the critics seem to like it I like it we got a 91 enthusiast score for it. So that would say, I think we can say reasonably that you definitely can grow good Cabernet um, in that Northeastern Humboldt section. Great. I, I also might throw in a little bit about Trinity County too, because I've had some experience there. So the area around High End Palm, where Randall Meredith planted vineyards has proven to be actually a pretty good area. And right out of the box, the first time that Randall had a crop of of Merlot, he sold some to um, uh, Fieldbrook Winery, and they entered in the in the uh, California State Fair, and they received Best of Show for Merlot, the first vintage, which is very impressive. It, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, they they also have some some vineyards up in Hayfork, which is a little bit more difficult because Hayfork is kind of getting to the edge of adaptation, where you can't dependably ripen fruit every season, so it's a little bit chilly there because of the high elevation, but I'm sure there's spots in Trinity County that also could be suitable for grapes. There definitely are, and we we used to make um, Nebbiolo from that area, which is a notoriously late-maturing grape. And um, in certain years, it came out excellent as well. So um, that that goes to show that uh, there's a lot of unexplored territory. I think even within Humboldt County, um, sort of the eastern part of the middle of the county, there's, um, as you go, you know, from the sort of middle part of the county east, I'm sure that there's some places that would be great for Pinot Noir and some places that would be great for Syrah and towards the outer edge, probably uh, even later maturing varietals. So um, there's a lot of exploration that just hasn't been done. So, Glenn, when you said it's a little bit chilly, does that mean that the nighttime temperatures are chilly or that the 
total warm days is a bit shorter in the season? Well, both. So I, I talk about maritime and continental climate. So maritime climate is where you have the influence of the ocean. So a good portion of Humboldt County gets fog or, or cool winds coming off the ocean that it, it temper the climate. And the more inland you go, the more continental it gets where you're not getting that, that cooling from the ocean. So, uh, you know, the days can get intensely warm in the summer and intensely cold in the winter. So what happens with these continental climates, it tends to trim the growing season. So it's, it's short but intense. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to hay fork, we're, we're getting so short that I'm not sure we're able to ripen everything uh, some years because the, the frost frost is deadly to, to any green foliage on grapes. So, And that's know, in the springtime, right? Springtime and fall. So okay. in, in the fall, the leaves and fruit will also get damaged by cold. So we actually, sometimes in Lake County where I work, we'll actually turn sprinklers on to protect the leaves from falling off if we're having a late season. Right, and I and I um, I get a call from my grape farmer in Orleans, and he says I think it's time to pick the Petit Verdot, and I say why is that, Joaquin? And he says, well, there's no leaves out there, so I don't think they're going to get any better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've established then that this is a decent area to grow grapes. There's a variety of different microclimates, and there's some different regions, some of which have been developed, some of which are just kind of in the infancy in that in that way. Um, so what about the wine market? Is it saturated? Is there room for more California and Northern California wine? Well, in the world wine market, we're awash in wine. There's good wine coming from everywhere. And, uh, you know, so if you're going to start a winery and uh, really in, in either of our counties, you have to take one or two strategies. Uh, so in Mendocino, we can we can grow fruit that's moderately priced and then farm a lot of it. Or we can go with uh, something where our yields are lower, but the fruit quality is very, very high. And with my my French wine grapes, that's kind of the strategy that I've taken is I'm trying to, to uh, uh, go for very high quality organically grown fruit. Uh, for my other variety, Arnais, which is Italian, um, I'm trying to do the same thing, but this, we're just blessed with a lot of bigger in that variety. It just likes to grow and it likes to make fruit. So you have to know a little bit about the variety that you're growing. Uh, if I were in Humboldt County, uh, first of all, uh, Pinot Noir is just a darling right now, and, and Humboldt County grows very good Pinot Noir, uh, in my opinion. It's, it's somewhere between Anderson Valley and Oregon in its quality, uh, and there's not much of it. And uh, in the hands of a skilled winemaker, it makes very, very good wine. And and the good news is that uh, people pay a lot of money for Pinot. And if they were, there was more of it for sale, I think Humboldt County would be enjoying a nice little boom in that variety. Um, uh, Andrew, you might make some comments about selling wine locally. I, I agree. And and, and um, uh, Pinot Noir from Southern Humboldt, there's definitely a shortage to the point that some people who want to make Pinot Noir are still buying Pinot Noir from outside the area. Because the local grape growers want, or the local um, the local winemakers want to make Pinot Noir, and there's not enough. And I'm also aware that a decent amount of our Pinot Noir is being sold to wineries um, in Windsor and other parts further south in Sonoma, uh, and they're um, they like it because uh, it's cheaper than the Sonoma Coast fruit, and um, it's something that not everyone has. And so if you've got something which is um, delicious and different, then um, that's what you need because it's very difficult to sell wine um, 
just on that it's palatable. That's no longer really enough. It has to be, at least from what I can tell, unless you're going to compete on price, it has to be um, interesting also. And uh, that's the great thing about all the different microclimates and different conditions in Humboldt County is that uh, there's endless opportunities for interesting. Excellent. Okay. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to KHSU's Thursday Night Talk. I'm Yana Valakovic. We're talking about winemaking and wine grapes. My guests are Andrew Morris, that's the voice you just heard, from Bryceland Vineyards, and Glenn McGordy, farm advisor in Mendocino County. We welcome your calls at 826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911, or give us a text at 707-492-KHSU. Well... Glenn, you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past, but I find it really fascinating to think about what it takes to develop a wine industry. And you've made some comment about how Napa had 100 years under their belt really before the region became known for grapes. So can you give us, I guess, the short cliff notes about grape growing and wine production in California? Like, where, where what were the tipping points? What were the major hurdles that, that changed the industry? Sure. Well, uh, wine's been here since the beginning. It came with it, well, beginning of, of European culture, that is. Uh, it came with the, uh, the Spanish uh, friars who, who uh, manned the missions, and, and they grew a variety that we call mission grape, and what they grew it for mostly was uh, distilling into brandy, which is sort of a uses for not only attitude adjustment, but a, a variety of other uh, medical reasons. And uh, by the 1800s, uh, when uh, the Yankees came, or, or the Americans, uh, and started planting in the 1850s, um, very quickly things like Zinfandel took over. Um, so, so from there, the, the, well, and interestingly, the industry also was pretty big in Southern California, so we had a lot of plantings down there. There was, in Anaheim was a very big wine colony. Uh, where they grew Riesling. There's a lot of Germans. But unfortunately, they got wiped out by a disease called Pierce's disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, Southern California for many years actually was the biggest wine production zone in California, bigger even than Northern California, which is really, a lot of people don't know that. Hmm. But gradually, the, uh, the industry grew and changed, and uh, the University of California entered into kind of advising them in around the 1870s with uh, Dr. Hilgard, who was a scientist from Switzerland and really believed that California could have a fine wine industry, but he was very stern with the growers and said, you can't grow garbage, you've got to grow good stuff. And, and he would get on his soapbox with them to the point where they got really annoyed with him and said, we don't want anything to do with you. And then a few years later, they realized they needed him for technical support. <laughs> That's how they, they, so that was a father's knows best kind of mode? <laughs> yeah, so, so they, he kind of came back in and then so, so the University of California has been sort of tied in with the wine industry uh, for a long, long time and, and worked with them through a lot of troubles, including post-prohibition. And uh, the initiative then was trying to make clean wine because when prohibition was over, the old wineries were really in bad shape and they, they never were that great, uh, microbiologically speaking. So it was always a race between uh, drinking wine and having vinegar. So it was pretty rare that you could keep your, your wine for, for more than five or six months before it started to go bad on you. And, of course, that was the beginning of the modern wine age. Was the first step was just to make good wine. Uh, and so that was post-prohibition until about the 1950s. And then 
people like Robert Mondavi and and Warren Wynarski uh, in Napa Valley started to make things more than the northern French uh, model with Cabernet and really switched the varieties around and and now we kind of find ourselves in the modern uh, wine industry that was developed pretty much in the northern French model which is good and bad because northern France is much further north than us their latitudes run from about 44 degrees to 50 degrees and uh, Mendocino's latitude 39, I guess Humboldt would be around latitude 41, maybe. Yeah, 41, 42. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, they're much further north than us, and their they're season's shorter and less dependable, so uh, we have some advantages over them. Uh, so the other point that I've made in my career is that I had taught plant materials at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo before coming here, and I noticed all of our best plants come from the Mediterranean region, and I started... Uh, kind of an interest in that, and that's why I grow Southern French white varieties and Arnais, and there's a whole plethora of wonderful varieties from the south of Europe that make really, really good wine that like heat and sunshine, whereas if we take Pinot Noir and plant it in Bakersfield, it doesn't do very well. Uh, but there's other varieties that would, and, and I've, I've always believed in trying to match your plant materials to, to uh, you know, the, the climate that you're in. So, you know, we're evolving, the industry is evolving, and uh, it's the same old story. There's a lot of consolidation, so it's tougher and tougher for small brands to get exposure into big markets, and that's why selling wine locally is a really important part if you're going to be a small winery, and I, I think that's part of the, the way that Bryceland just survives. Um, anyway, that's my thumbnail sketch of how it all worked. <laughs> uh, the last thing I would say is that in order to have a successful wine industry, it's really important to have sort of generational knowledge, and I think maybe that's why Humboldt's starting a little slowly right now, because we're just on our second generation with Andrew. Uh, Mendocino is starting on his sixth, so generations matter. And, and same thing with Napa Sonoma; they are they're on their seventh and eighth generation of, of grape growers. So you learn a lot over the years, and you know the right place to put things in, and kind of what the climate is, and how to deal with stuff. Right. Right. It takes time to match the grape farm. You know, the first what finds to plant in which place, and then the farming technique, and then the winemaking technique and what the customers want and it takes years for that feedback to make it all the way through the loop from the customer back to the winemaker from the winemaker back to the vineyard manager and then for the vineyard manager to then adjust and then it has to come back through because then the winemaker's got to readjust again so there's um one of the things that i say is that you know winemakers the world over um figure out what they can do and then claim that that's what they meant to do (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah, a lot of it's serendipity, no question about it. And, and so, I mean, one of the examples that I use is that um, we make Sauvignon Blanc in Southern Humboldt, and as it turns out, it's a blend of several different vineyards. Well, I mean, it's good luck because that's how I like it. It turns out that Sauvignon Blanc can be kind of monochromatic if it's farmed very carefully in one site. There can be a lot of one aroma and not much else. But if you take three or four sites and blend them together... Um, it makes a much more interesting wine. And uh, I didn't do that on purpose. It's just what I had. But it turns out when I compare it to single-site wines, I'm like, wow, this is way better. Great. Excellent. So what are the, what, what I guess, maybe limiting factors? I don't know. What do Humboldt and Trinity need to expand in their grape growing? Well, that's a really good question because you're so early on in the game. Um, you know what what worked pretty well for part of the reason why I think that that like in Mendocino and Lake that we were able to to move into the wine industry pretty quickly. First of all, we have this going on on a limited scale, 
but we were always perennial crop growers here, so um, it wasn't that much good land that you could irrigate and grow stuff on. So we always had kind of perennial crops that were in the ground for a long time. So we had the pear industry, the hops industry, the prune industry, the apple industry. So, you know, we were used to growing perennial crops, and and we knew, you know, the establishment takes a while, getting things up to production takes a while. And and part of, I think, what Humboldt County uh, is behind on is that you don't really grow a lot of perennial crops. Everything is more or less annual or pasture or uh, other than timber, of course. But, um, you know, and, and the way timber is grown is really different from the way the most horticultural crops are grown. So there just isn't sort of a community of perennial crop growers there that uh, can sort of be comfortable with knowing how to grow things. So first it takes the growers who are interested, who are willing to try and, and get involved. And then you then you need some technical support. You really need someone to, to help you. And, and really, what we know about where farmers like to get information, they love getting information from each other. That's one of their favorite sources. Uh, next, they get information from people who sell them stuff. And then third on the list, unfortunately, are, are people like Yana and me who are UC farm advisors. So, um, you know, not having a, a perennial crop person and Humboldt County working in Cooperative Extension has been a little bit of a setback, too. So um, hopefully we're going to remedy that situation here with a new advisor, and um, I'm pretty sure that we'll, we'll find someone with some interest in growing perennial crops. So, Andrew, do people come to you talking about interest in putting in a vineyard? Uh, all the time. Um, lots of people do. <laughs> Unfortunately, the ratio of the people who talk about it to the those that actually do it is... Um, not a very high ratio. So, um, but what Glenn touched on is exactly right. And I would say that um, it's the group of people that I'm trying to target are people that are actually um, in ag. So maybe that's ranchers, maybe that's um, like my favorite farmer is, uh, it's a family of organic vegetable farmers that also have a vineyard. So they have farm equipment. They know what farming is. They're professional farmers. They're making their living off it. And grapes are one of the products they produce. And so um, they take it seriously and understand what's going on. And they have friends in Sonoma County that they talk to. And so they're not just sort of out in the woods um, by themselves. And so when I look at people to talk more seriously about uh, grape farming, um, my prejudice is in favor of people who are already making their living off of the land. And um, usually my prejudice might be slightly, this might be you know better not to say this out loud, but I will, um, against maybe the dope farmers. Not that I've got anything against them, but the chance of them seriously taking on planting a vineyard and managing it correctly is not as high as somebody who's in some other form of ag. Okay. Although that might be changing now because the price, the difference in price is um, still significant, but not as big a difference as it used to be. And, and I open that question with a presumption that we should be expanding. And, and really, I'm just trying to explore the, the question of what, what is the potential and more, sort of what are the limiting factors. And it sounds like knowledge is one of those and familiarity with a perennial crop, as, as Glenn says. Um, but I think maybe a little later we'll get into, you know, where you can get more training and where you can get more awareness. There's one other thing that generally I would mention, which is it seems to me that there's a sort of critical mass. So like Glenn was saying, um, farmers like to get information from other farmers. 
and the grape farmers in Humboldt County are spread out and don't run into each other on a daily basis. Right. And so um, that's one that's one thing. So um, creating more of a community, there's a sort of critical mass where the information could, um, good techniques, failures, what people are doing right, what they're doing wrong, um, could uh, be transferred more quickly if there were more interaction amongst the people who are farming grapes and the people who are considering potentially farming grapes um, so that that information can get disseminated. Um, Right now, it'd be, you know, you're lucky if you know somebody who grows grapes. Right, right. Glenn, I know one thing you've you've commented to me about that one of the challenges of growing in the in the valley bottoms is that you can spread disease really quickly because you've got high continuity between one vineyard to the next. I imagine this separation is also a benefit too because you can you know isolate your grapes. It's a tremendous benefit. So you know we have a lot of vineyards in Humboldt County that are on their own roots. They're not grafted. Uh, people took cuttings and started them that way, and I don't usually recommend that because uh, there's an insect called phylloxera that will attack the roots and eventually destroy the plants. But given that so many of the vineyards are isolated um, and there's very little traffic in and out of them from other vineyards, um, it, it's a way that you can farm in Humboldt County that w- is not so easy in other places. So, um, yeah. so, so this, and then the other thing that I would say about Humboldt County is that it's biologically buffered well because there's so much wildlands around the agricultural production areas and that can work against you in the case of things like birds and deer but and bears 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 Bears, raccoons (laughs) there's a lot of things that want to eat your grapes they're nice and sweet um so so you have to take some defensive strategies mainly it's fencing and other deterrents but um you also get a lot of benefits from from journalist predators and parasitoids that kind of live in the forest and like eating the bugs that like eating grapes, and we figure that 60% of the uh, uh, biological control can be achieved with these guys, so things like minute pirate bugs and ladybugs and uh, other insects that, that like eating uh, pests. Uh, so so that's definitely a, a very good thing. And now, now we're also finding out, we're starting to study a lot more about the microbes that live on, on the different parts of the plants, and we're finding out that being adjacent to a forest is really good, particularly if you're looking for, like, native yeast to uh, ferment uh, your fruit when you bring it in. So a lot of winemakers right now use uh, native fermentations where they basically don't add yeast, they crush the fruit, and the yeast comes in with the fruit, or it's probably also in the winery as well. And and, uh, fermentations can be very interesting and really add a lot of complexity to the wine. And I'm totally convinced that because of the way that Mendocino and Humboldt counties and Trinity are kind of located in forested regions that this is a plus. It's a good thing. Would that be an example like where Fry's Vineyards are or Frey's Vineyards are in Redwood Valley? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they, they, they do uh, natural fermentations. So uh, natural fermentations are, are generally pretty good, but there's some risk with them, so you've got to be paying close attention so you you won't find large commercial wineries typically with you know 80,000 gallon tanks doing this because they they can get out of control pretty quickly if you're not paying attention but with the way that Andrew makes wine which is very handcrafted you're able to kind of ward off any evil if something bad starts happening uh, with with different techniques of, of uh, adding sulfites or doing other things if you think something bad's going wrong or you can add commercial yeast or do you have other tools right right and uh something that I'm looking forward to experimenting with 
Um, the difficulty for me, and this is back to your earlier question, um, uh, the labor market in Humboldt County is another major limitation that we have. And so once I get enough staff in the winery, then I can start doing some more experiments like that, um, like like native yeast fermentations with the same fruit and do comparisons or blending or those sorts of things. Um, whereas if I'm the guy who's keeping all the records and doing all of the manual work myself, then I don't really have time to do experiments. Um, so labor infrastructure is another limiting factor. And I also think that ties back to uh, the changes in marijuana regulation um, over the long run will help the labor market, um, the availability of labor uh, in Humboldt County. Well, that's a problem all over, too, and with the tightening of immigration controls and, and maybe the, uh, some of the improvement in the Mexican economy, it's not quite as attractive to come across the border. So we're all facing that. Uh, you know, so mechanization is something the bigger growers are looking at more seriously. And, and even in the last five years, I'm surprised at how much mechanical harvest we do now, which in the olden days, the wine, wineries didn't like so much. They preferred hand-harvested fruit because it was handled more gently. But the realities of finding picking crews have made it that they, they do, we're using more mechanized uh, harvest now. The machines have improved also. Yes, um, that, that's a good thing. Yeah, the machines have improved. Um, but you're right, and I was I would add to that list of things that are impediments is just um, maybe for some people a hostile political environment if you're um, contemplating coming from Mexico to work in the United States maybe you know bad vibes might keep you in Mexico too yeah yeah, it's an interesting market here, nonetheless. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to KHSU's Thursday Night Talk. I'm Yana Valakovic. We're talking about winemaking and wine grapes. My guests are Andrew Morris with Bryceland Vineyards and Glenn McGordy, farm advisor in Mendocino County. We welcome your calls at 826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911 or give us a text at 707-492-KHSU. Okay, so we were just talking about some of these regional challenges and talking a little bit about mechanized harvesting. Maybe we should talk a little bit about grape growing, grape growing techniques. And, you know, there's, you hear about frost protection being an issue. You know, Glenn, do you want to, you know, sort of give us a bit of an impression of what some of the trade-offs and options are? I know you're, you've got some forward-thinking uh, lines about how you install your grape lines and thinking about the right heights and how that might create some more opportunities for intermixing with sheep. And so there's like a, there's a whole field of, of new thoughts and conventions around grape production. Yeah, well, Mendocino is, as a grape growing region is always a bit of an outlying point because we're isolated. <laughs> and very early on, uh, Mendocino County got interested in organic wine growing and people like the Fries and the Fessers, in particular, are early pioneers. And uh, what started out as organic quickly morphed into biodynamic. And, um, you know, I've always been interested in these uh, systems, in part because uh, when I was a student at Humboldt State, I was a botany major, but I also took uh, uh, classes in ecology, uh, both there at UCSC and uh, Goddard College, where I started. And I uh, always thought it was. Uh, an interesting way of looking at farming and it's more of a system approach as opposed to looking at individual components. And I really like the biodynamic farming because it's a one uh, style of farming that treats 
your farm is an ecosystem that should be self-regulating for fertility and pest management and such. And there's a lot of emphasis put on trying to balance growth in the vines, uh, which is really good for fruit quality. And we we went through some, some pretty difficult times here in Mendocino County when water was, uh, you know, we, we had drought and water availability for frost protection, which we typically do, uh, was curtailed. Uh, in some cases, are really limited. So this got me thinking about all right, let's let's zero down in, and and what can we do uh, to to do frost protection? So there's wind machines, which are also expensive and really annoying to neighbors because they're loud. And then um, you know I focused on some research I did years ago with pears, which it turns out in order to have frost, you have to have microbes, you have to have what's called ice nucleating bacteria, and they have basically the template for forming frost built into their cell wall, which is really interesting and it's kind of hard to understand why is that, but these ice nucleators are also really important in, in a lot of other things such as forming rain. So I'm working kind of on the idea with Steve Lindau from UC Berkeley that if we can control the ice nucleators, we can get the plants to super cool and go below freezing. And uh, we're able to control it a couple different ways. One of them is by using copper, uh, which is uh, an antibiotic basically, uh, and it'll knock the population down uh, sometimes a million fold or even more than that. So if you don't have ice nucleators, you, we've proven in the laboratory that, that we can get the grapes to, to chill down as low as 26 or 27 degrees before frost forms. So we're trying to do this on a field, field scale. And of course, what always happens in my research when I'm trying to investigate some plague, it doesn't show up. <laughs> right. So the growers love me. They just, you know, after my first year of doing research and there was no frost, they said, Glenn, take the whole ranch, you know, please. Because we know if you're researching frost, we won't have any. And, and sure enough, this year was the same. So it's kind of frustrating, but we can still make things freeze in the laboratory. And we're showing pretty clearly there's two things that really influence uh, frost happening. One of them is uh, the uh, the back- presence of the bacteria, and the second is what's around it, because there's other hosts for the bacteria that will allow the bacteria to grow in and contaminate the crops. So if we can restrict the, the growth of those things as well, such as cover crops on the vineyard floor by either mowing or choosing the right cover crop that doesn't support the bacterium, then we can also lower the temperature which a vineyard freezes. Hmm. Finally, the old timers always told us, get your, your canopy up higher above the ground and the closer you are to the ground, the more likely you are to freeze. And that's proven to be true. And then the other added benefit from that is that then we can mow with sheep and sheep are tremendous for vineyard floor management. Hmm. You, you run them in high numbers for brief periods of time, and they mow everything down. And they, they typically, for the organic growers, they say that they they may have to make as many as six passes under the vine cultivating for weeds, and it cuts it down by at least two. And instead of four mowings, they can get by with two mowings for vineyard floor management. Hmm. So, interesting. Yeah. So, Glenn, let's maybe hold that thought there. We've got we've got a caller on the line. Um, so maybe we'll answer the caller's questions and then come back to thinking about this production piece. So, uh, Martin, welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Are you there? Martin, welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Well, maybe we lost him. Okay. Feel free to give us a call back, Martin. Sorry about that. Um, so we were talking about... Great production. I know Andrew's got a comment he wants to add into this. So in Humboldt County, um, mostly, um, Joe, my stepfather, had been advising people on site selection. 
So if they if it, people are able to pick a hillside, this because he didn't know about Glenn's microbe thing, which neither did mm-hmm. I know about. So that's fantastic information. But um, prior to having that information um, in Humboldt County, people focused on having their vines on a hillside, uh, particularly you know probably a south facing hillside, but a hillside with good air drainage, because um, the likelihood. Uh, frost happening where there's uh, the good flow of air uh, down out of the vineyard just to a lower spot um, reduces the likelihood of frost after the point at which the vines have budded out because frost isn't going to hurt vines when they're dormant. So we have to uh, be concerned about frost from when the leaves start to form until we've picked the grapes. And if we don't get frost in that time window, then we're good. And uh, hillside vineyards generally... um, at least in Southern Humboldt, and I think other parts of Humboldt as well, um, don't get frosted. I mean, they don't even have frost protection at all installed because right. they, 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 the risk of frost is low enough that they, they haven't bothered to install it. Right, because the cool air falls down the hillside and doesn't linger on the, on the slopes. And, and ends in Bryceland at my house. Right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so we, we do have frost protection. We have ponds, and that's what we do. Yeah. But, but, um, but, uh, after realizing that with his own vines, Joe advised all the people who are planting oh. to plant on hillsides. <laughs> right, right. Let's see. We might have, we, I think we have Martin back. Welcome to Thursday Night Hello. Talk, Martin. All right. I think we can hear you now. Maybe not. Heard him for a second. I heard you for a second there, Martin. Let's see. How about now? You there? This better be good. Mm. <laughs> uh, fun with technology okay so so we've ruled out we've ruled out some there's some new technologies around frost there's some site selection issues there are maybe some new opportunities with isonucleating bacteria love it that's totally cool um maybe some p- potential for using sheep in in some kind of herbaceous control element that sounds really neat um so are other regions developing with these kinds of systems like what about southern oregon you know since they're kind of a new region coming on what's going on yeah. there well what's going on in southern oregon they talked to me <laughs> <laughs> so they they discovered me a few years ago and they they realized that southern oregon is pretty similar really to Lake County in particular. If you look at Medford and you look at Lake County, their degree summation and their weather patterns are very similar. And Southern Oregon is growing quite a bit. And again, why are they growing? Because they have plenty of crop production. So they they Mm -hmm. have pears there, uh, and that's been a crop that they've grown for years, but the pear market's kind of going away because people don't eat canned fruit anymore, and that's kind of what they were set up to do. And um, the Pinot Noir market in Northern Oregon uh, is blooming, but they have kind of a structural problem in that you just can't make a lot of fruit in, in those uh, vineyards. They're so far north that it's hard to carry a big crop load there, so if they get two and a half tons an acre, they're very, very happy. So southern Oregon can, can grow more fruit uh, and ripen it because it's warmer, uh, but it's it's still the quality of fruit for Pinot is, is acceptable, and if it's blended with fruit from the north, it makes pretty decent wine. So there's been a lot of growth in Pinot Noir acreage, uh, and then they also have a mix of a lot of the Mediterranean varieties that I like. They realized that they could do that in Southern Oregon, so things like Syrah and, and Grenache. and Tempranillo, uh, right? Tempranillo and mm-hmm. uh, Alvarino and 
a lot of really neat stuff going on there. So Southern Oregon is just this little hotbed of, of activity right now. Of, uh, still not a big industry. They're, they're about 6,000 acres total, but a lot of growth in the, in the last 10 years and um, a lot more growth kind of planned. Huh, okay. I think we finally have Martin on the line. You do. Hey, welcome. <laughs> You've been very patient. Thank you very much. You're well, thank you. What 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 can we uh, what can we ask offer you here? What well, can we I have talk? a question that I've been working with and asking winemakers and uh, wine salesmen over the years. And um, that's a phenomena that I have found. Uh, I'll give you a, an example, but I found it with many wineries. In '05, Robert Mondavi made a Canaris Pinot Noir. And the thing astounded me. It tasted like a Latache. Now, they didn't make anything else that even was similar to a European Pinot Noir until, instead until 010. And I found out, asking people, that those were particularly cool years in the Canaris region that they were making wines. And this same thing happened to a couple of other wineries. So I asked um, K&L's wine buyer, they're the biggest purchases of fine wines in California and, and, sell, and, and uh, outlet for them. And they said, well, yeah, the cooler regions do taste Burgundian, but he says the problem is Californians aren't oriented towards that, and we can't sell them. Uh, my question, I guess, is, is that true? Can we make Burgundy-style wines um, or... Uh, from just my limited observations, and two, can we sell them? Well, well, I'll address the first one a little bit because I, you know, I certainly think about it. So, Carneros, by and large, is a is a warmer Pinot area, and they, in fact, uh, Pinot Noir acreage is declining in there because they feel like it's too warm, and they should probably be, be growing something else. So, uh, Pinot's going out, and Chardonnay is going in. Uh, I notice a real difference between Anderson Valley and, and Carneros and even Russian River Valley in Sonoma County. And it turns out that Anderson Valley has the, the lowest mean temperature of Pinot regions, although I don't really know what Humboldt is. I bet they may have us beat. So the, if we average all the temperatures year-round, it's 57 degrees in Anderson Valley. It's 62 degrees in Sonoma uh, in Russian River Valley and 69 degrees in, in Carneros. So uh, it's definitely getting warmer. And if you want to grow uh, Burgundian-like Pinot, uh, cool is good uh, uh, because you retain more acidity in the, in the fruit and wine. Uh, and you can see that because if you taste some of the Russian River Pinots, they're very big, and to me they're kind of clunky. I mean, they're more like Syrah than they are like Pinot, where this Pinot from Humboldt and Mendocino County tends to be lighter and more delicate and, to me, more aromatic and more interesting. And yeah, and and O10 um, um, Swan uh, Joseph Swan Winery made what I would call a Reachborg, and that was also an extremely cool um, region. But is KNL's uh, wine buyer correct that the problem with that is because I love those things and they cost ten times as much as. Uh, as what they do here, but is it true that 
the problems these people have is uh, California. I think it's changing. Oriented towards let's that. Let, let's let Andrew answer this here. Um, sure. So. Uh, this is a shameless plug, but you should come and taste a couple of these things that we produce in Humboldt County. Um, so I, I live in Humboldt County. Well, you should come and taste at Bryceland um, because um, <laughs> we we have we have a bunch of different individual vineyards, and the thing is, is that um, uh, it's true that 2010 was a cold year. Um, it was a train wreck for us. I was. Um, uh, making wine from several vineyards that all came in underripe, um, crushing them in the rain on November 1st and 2nd. And so that just goes to show that in cool years, we're on the um, difficult-to-ripen range of Pinot Noir in cool years, whereas Carneros, on a cool year, it's finally cool enough that they can make good Pinot Noir. So there's people that are on different edges of the ranges. And I think that the best wine for any varietal is made in an area where you can ripen it maybe eight or nine years out of 10 or seven. Because if you can ripen it 10 years out of 10, then there's going to be a bunch of years that are too warm for that variety to perform its best. Yeah. And so um, more on that. Um, there's a customer of mine that's um, uh, a pretty uh, hotshot wine guy. I can tell by looking at his tasting notes because some weekends he puts up 50 or 75 tasting notes. And um, he's put my Pinots in blind tastings in Atlanta for in the business people. And um, they've thought it was um, Burgundy from a warm year. And in particular, one vineyard called Rhonda's Vineyard. Um, is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that it's like Burgundy, but his friends thought it was when they tasted it blind. What kind of barrels do you use? I use, um, I use mostly older, um, but some new uh, Virginia oak. Uh And uh, the Virginia oak, from what we can tell, is um, the best value in oak by a long shot because it's, the flavor component is pretty similar to um, to French oak, mm-hmm. um, but the price is about a third the price. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Martin. That was a great and stimulating question. I appreciate it. Sure, thank you. All right. Let's see. I believe we've got another caller. Um, do you want to? It's a text, actually, yes. Okay. So. Here it is. I did not get their name, but thank you so much for texting us. And here goes. I understand that it takes a lot of water to grow grapes for wine, just as it grow, just as it takes a lot of water to grow almonds. Although we currently have sufficient water on the North Coast, California has just come off of a drought that affected that affected all of us. What is the grape growing and winemaking industry doing to decrease water to require, water requirements or improve water usage? Thank you. Um, well, so one thing we're doing for sure is that we're we're uh, doing two approaches to irrigation. One of them is drip irrigation, which virtually every vineyard is on that irrigates now. Um, but the the other one is we do what's called regulated deficit irrigation. We've learned that if we hold back water early and uh, apply it later as we get towards harvest, that's where we get our best quality. We kind of keep the canopy from getting too large, which uses less water, and uh, we tend to concentrate the flavors of the fruit. So. The amount of water that we use here, like in Mendocino County, for even our big uh, Chardonnay vineyards, which have a lot of fruit on them and require more water than most things, is still well under one acre foot when we include everything, including frost protection. 
by comparison, most orchard crops in our region would use about two and a half acre feet, and an acre foot is approximately 325,000 gallons of water. Whereas if we look at almonds in the Central Valley, that's about uh, close to five acre feet to grow them. So, you know, we're, we're pretty water efficient with wine grapes. And if we go into places like Anderson Valley where it's cooler, we're using two or three acre inches, which is, you know, a fraction of that. So I think we're pretty careful with water and, uh, and we don't use it extra- extravagantly. Uh, and, and, the, and recently in Ukiah, our, kind of our next step towards conservation is that we're installing what we call purple uh, water, which is basically recycled water from the sewage treatment plant. So it will have been tertiary treated and uh, it'll cut the water usage of most of the wine grapes in Ukiah Valley about in half because we'll have that available to us. Hmm. So we'll go from well, using 8,000 acre feet down to about 4,000 acre feet. And um, looking at it locally in Humboldt County, and this is something that, that I hear from time to time in Southern Humboldt, as you can imagine, um, somebody who has a big um, cannabis business and they're talking about water usage and they're often saying, well, what about the grapes? And in Humboldt County, the vast majority of it um, is using no water at all after the grapes are established. Um, so they're dry farmed. They're dry yep. farmed or nearly dry farmed. And so um, the first three years, they need water to get established. And then after that, um, I would say um, most of the vineyards don't get watered at all. And some of them get watered maybe um, one or two times per year when there's a hot spell to prevent the fruit from desiccating and allow, um, allow the fruit to main, maintain quality through that hot spell um, that's you know, within a couple weeks of harvest. And so... Um, uh, people who are whataboutinging about water and grapes, uh, one way to resolve that is plant more grapes in Humboldt County. And the other thing that's happening, too, on a long-term uh, research basis from, from the University of California is that we're, we're breeding new rootstocks that we graft our varieties onto that uh, can grow with less water. So that's kind of a priority. And, uh, you know, we kind of understand that, that in a thirsty state like California, we live in drought for at least five months out of the year, even in the wet zones. So we're trying to design our vineyards to be more water efficient in the future and require less irrigation. Well, I want to thank the uh, texter of that message. Uh, It was a a great question. We're getting towards the end of the show, and I want to just make sure we cover a couple more topics before we wrap up. Um, One is, you know, we haven't talked that much about Appalachians, you know, regional winemakers. We've talked a little bit about Pinot, but, you know, what what are we becoming known for? And what, and what you know, how would you characterize the overall wine development in, in Humboldt? That's a question for Andrew. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm not sure that we're really being known yet for anything on a big scale, and that has to do with the quantity of wine we produce. Um but I think that um, Humboldt County Pinot Noir has definitely gotten some recognition uh, from from Bryceland's wines being reviewed on you know lots of ninety plus scores with uh, different different writers, and also um, a few of the other producers that buy grapes from Humboldt County and make the wine further south. Um, and so uh, Southern Humboldt has definitely gotten some recognition for that, and then um, Northeastern Humboldt has gotten some recognition as well. And there's a guy that. Uh, has made um, some Syrahs that have gotten really good uh, marks and scores and also some Bordeaux blends uh, from Willow Creek. And so um, along with the Cabernet that I mentioned. um, So I think that Humboldt County is being known right now. If you look in sort of 
the wine nut circles as being uh, the frontier uh, of places to explore. And so um, I think we're on the verge of a little bit of a mini boom in wine grape planting, especially as property values have plummeted in the last year. Um, as the changes in marijuana regulation or cannabis regulation have gone through, um, the availability of land that might be suitable for planting grapes, um, you know, uh, by comparison to other known grape growing regions, the land is now um, more suitably priced here in Humboldt County for grape farming. Hmm. Okay. And, so, and that is a bit of a puzzle to me why Humboldt County isn't uh, being looked at a little bit more seriously by other grape growing uh, grape growers from other regions, but I think that's something to look forward to. As far as Appalachians go, the first thing is to get Humboldt on the map, you know, so that people know where Humboldt County is. That's an Appalachian, is Humboldt County. And, uh, you know, beyond that, there's not much sense in promoting any individual regions until people are drinking more Humboldt County wine. Hmm. Yeah, so we like to put just Humboldt County on the label. Um, and so then the wines that are not from Humboldt County would put, you know, whatever other county is from, like with your Arnais, Glenn, which um, I should say that it's great to be on the show with you, Glenn. Um, you're on my, there's a short list of people that I have uh, for my phone a friend when I have a question. And if I reach two people and they agree and you're one of them, then I'm pretty sure that we've got it right. So, <laughs> Well, we've got, I don't know, a couple more minutes here. And, and as we start to close out, you know, for those that are listening to this show and are curious about where to start, whether it's in the winemaking side or whether it's in the grape growing side, each of you, could you give maybe a minute and a half on where to direct people for more information, how to get it, get going? Uh, we we have a website uh, at UC Davis called uh, the Integrated. Uh, uh, oh boy, I'm not going to get it right. Um, so so they're, they're <laughs> Integrated Viticulture uh, Production. I think it's it's um, it's run through uh, the Foundation Plant Services, and it's a really wonderful website that has a lot of information on it. So that's a good source and. There's classes that are taught periodically at UC Davis called UC Davis Extension, and those are good. Um, there's some online wine education that's going on from different parts of the United States that you can tap into, including, I think, Oregon State. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, didn't you tell me that there's also some Humboldt State Extension classes? Yep, there is a HSU from Vine to Table Wine Studies Certificate Program, which is new but done through the Extended Ed Program. Yeah, and there's, um, there's some good information coming out through that. And uh, I would like to put in a short plug for Glenn's um, organic grape-growing book that's offered through UC Press. That's another good resource that I think um, that Glenn's the editor of. Um, can you say the exact title of that book for us? It's called The Organic Wine Growing Manual. Uh, it's uh, UC a Publications. So that's a good resource. Um, and it's also true um, that the UC Extension has fantastically good uh, winemaking, uh, detailed winemaking courses. And what I tell people is it's, it's as if they take a semester of winemaking and put it into a weekend and then hand you a book at the end and say, well, if you don't like our conclusions, read this. Um, and so it's a, the, the manual is you know two inches thick of all the studies that support their conclusions. So that's a really good resource. And the, um, the HSU Wine Studies Program has been a really good thing for creating community. 
because some people I know have gone to those courses specifically because they wanted to meet people in the wine industry and connect with them. And one of my best workers is one of those guys that went to the class to meet people. I met him there, and he's been helping out. So that's um, uh, the idea of forming community around the classes is, uh, is something that's been good. And that's really important to being having a successful industry is, is having a kind of critical mass of people working in it. Right. Well, what a fun conversation is between the two of you guys. I really wasn't looking to plug UC, but really I just wanted to explore this, this issue and, and try and figure out what is right about Humboldt, what, what limits Humboldt, and sort of where, where the near-term opportunities are. And I think we've been able to touch on a number of those topics today. So I want to thank you all for listening to KHSU's Thursday Night Talk. And I'd like to thank yes. Andrew Morris with